Chapter Five of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Five, The Café of Abdullah. "'Well, you got away from them all right?' began the man with the green turban, when, according to his roundabout instructions, I met him an hour later at the café he had named, one of the principal resorts of Cairo, where Europeans can consort with natives without attracting remark. The real dragoman came and took them off my hands, at least the realer one than you, a dreadful creature with a game eye, who murdered your messenger last night, and gave me your letter and induced the ladies to engage him on the strength of it. No wonder they want a looker to take the taste of him out of their mouths. And you certainly are a looker in that get-up. Now kindly tell me all about it, and everything else. That's what I'm here for, said Anthony, running a match-box to earth in some mysterious Arab pocket. But hold on, Duffer. Something you said just then may be important. Is it true that my messenger didn't give you the letter? If you'd hung about Shepherd's Hotel ten minutes longer, you'd have seen the fellow who did give it. Better El Gamali, he calls himself, Armenian Mussulman, a sickening combination, and an awful brute to look at. Said your messenger was taken suddenly ill, pretends to be a dragoman. What is he like? Rather like a partially decayed but decently dressed goat. Don't rot, this may be serious. I described Better El Gamali as best I could, feature by feature. When I had polished them off, Anthony shook his green-turbaned head. No portrait of him in my rogues' gallery. Just now I'm sensitive about spies. Over-sensitive, rather. Of course you've spotted my game. I confess I was conceited enough you'd think you'd given yourself all this trouble with a costumier in order to take a rise out of me. But when you speak of spies, I begin to put two and two together. Your business in Cairo, the powers that be, keeping you from me last night, etc. I suppose it's an official job, this fancy dress affair? Yes, in my own capacity I'm not in Cairo. I turned up day before yesterday, jolly glad to get back from Adrianople, though it was good fun there, I can tell you, for a while, and I looked forward to wallowing no end in the alleged delights of civilization. I reported myself, and all seemed well. I took a room at Shepherd's where you and I had arranged to meet, and when I'd scrubbed I strolled over to the Turf Club to see what the gay world would have to say to a fellow in disgrace. Only silly asses swallowed that newspaper spoof. Everyone in London who knows anything about you was betting his boots that the story had been spread on purpose to save our face with turkey. I couldn't resist interrupting his narrative to this extent. But Anthony merely smiled, and watched a long-lived smokering settle like a halo over the head of an Arab at the nearest table. He was not giving away official secrets. But I was sure, and always had been sure, that he was a martyr, not a rebel, in the matter of the Balkan incident just closed. What the public were led to suppose was this, that Captain Fenton had asked for two months' leave from regimental duty at Khartoum, in order to spend the time with a relative who was seriously ill in Constantinople, that instead of remaining at his relative's bedside, he had used his leave for a dash to the Balkans, that this indiscretion might have been kept a secret had he not capped it with another, a flight with a Greek officer in an army aeroplane, which had ended by crashing down in the midst of a Turkish encampment. What I, and friends who knew him best, supposed, was that the leave had been a pretext, that Fenton had been sent on a secret mission of some sort, and that he was bound to take the blame if anything went wrong. 
Aeroplanes have the habit of other fierce, untamed animals. They won't always obey their trainers. Thus Anthony and his plan had both been upset. Or had it really been premeditated that he should fall into that camp? The remainder of his leave was cancelled in punishment, and he had been recalled to Egypt to be scolded in Cairo before proceeding to Khartoum. "'Queer how many silly asses one knows,' Anthony said. "'Still, considering what a mess I seem to have made of things, fellows were jolly kind at the turf club. Nobody cut me, and only a few let me alone. Maybe there'd have been still fewer if there hadn't been a hero present who claimed attention, an American chap, Jack Dennis, who knows Miss Gilder and was telling the good news that she was on her way to Egypt. He called her the Gilded Rose, and said it was going to be a good flower season in Cairo and up the Nile.' All the men, with one exception, seemed to have heard a lot about her, and to find her an interesting subject, and to want Dennis to introduce them. "'I can guess the one exception,' said I. "'Can you? Well, I don't read newspaper gossip about heiresses. Thank heaven I've something better to do with my time. But the others wanted to meet her, or pretended to, perhaps to chaff Dennis, rather a cocky youth, though I oughtn't to say so, as he was nice to me, according to his lights.' He got Sam Blake to introduce us, when he happened to hear my name, and went out of his way to pay me compliments, which I dare say he thought I'd like. When there was a lull in the discussion of what could be done to make Miss Gilder enjoy herself in Egypt, chaps suggesting trips in their motor-cars or on their camels and a lot of rot, Dennis remarked that I was the only man who hadn't chipped into the conversation. And hadn't I any ideas for entertaining the golden girl? Naturally, I said that I didn't know who she was, and I had never heard of her, and even if I had, entertaining girls wasn't in my line. They all roared, and Dennis wouldn't believe at first that I didn't know of such an important person's existence, but the other men rotted a bit, and described me to him according to their notions of me. So he let me alone on the subject, and having plenty of other things to think of, I forgot all about it till the lady in question introduced herself this morning. Then, well, it struck me as rather amusing at first that I, the only one in the crowd who hadn't made plans to get at her, should have her trying to get at me. That was partly why I came up on the terrace when she beckoned. Partly? For purely intellectual reasons, I'm curious to know the rest. I suppose it had nothing to do with her looks? As it happened, my cynical friend, it hadn't. I've got eyes in my head, and I could see she was pretty, very pretty, though not my ideal type at all. That little sprite of a woman in fawn color, the one with green eyes and a lot of black lashes, is more what I'd fall in love with if I were frivolous. But apart from the funny side of my meeting with Miss Golder, or Gilder, it popped into my head that I might make her a victim in a certain cause. Don't ask me to explain yet, because there are a lot of things that have got to be explained first, or you couldn't understand. You were right, of course, when you thought I'd stationed myself in front of Shepherd's to take a rise out of you. I gave up my room there yesterday, for reasons I'll tell you. But I knew you'd be in the hotel, and that you'd be bound to show yourself on the terrace in order to go out. I wanted to see if you'd recognize me, and to have a little fun with you if you didn't. By the way, I'm not pleased that you did. It's a poor compliment to my make-up, which I may tell you has been warmly praised in high quarters. Well, you see, I apologized, I knew you were a nailer at that sort of thing, or you would have never got to Mecca and earned your green turban. I knew you'd been pretty often called upon to disguise yourself and go about among the natives for one thing and another. And besides, we were chums before you had the shadow of a mustache, so I have an advantage over the other Sherlock Holmeses. But even as it was, I couldn't be sure at first. 
You must have got some fun out of my expression. I did. I took revenge on you for recognizing me by tormenting you as far as I dared. Dear old boy, I knew you'd see me through to the end, bitter or sweet. Which was it? I inquired. Mixed. The girl riled me, rather, so much that I definitely decided it would be fair play to make use of her as a cat's paw. But it depends on you whether she's to lose or win her bet. If she loses, I get her hat. If she wins, I've engaged myself to procure for her your green turban. Do you think you could, without my consent? No, I distinctly thought I couldn't. But I would have been willing to bet the head in the turban, served up on a charger, so sure was I that you'd refuse to come near her. I thought I knew you au fond, you see. You do. I haven't changed. But circumstances have changed, and that brings me near to the stage of this business which concerns you and me. First, before I go further, though, I'll tell you a part of the reason why I'm sporting the green turban. There's been the dickens to pay here, about a new street that had to be made, an immensely important and necessary street. Well, they couldn't make it, because of the tomb of a popular saint or sheikh was in the way. To move the body or even disturb a saint's tomb would mean no end of a row. You remember, or have read enough about Mohammedans, to know that. What to do was the question. Nobody'd been able to answer it till yesterday, when the sight of me reminded them of a trick or two I'd brought off some time ago, by disguising myself and hanging about the cafés. They wanted me to try it again. Consequently, Captain A. Fenton received a telegram, and had to leave Cairo at once on business. He gave up his room at Shepherd's, and the only regrettable thing to the official mind is that the fellow'd been seen about town even for an hour. However, it couldn't be helped. Luckily, Ahmed Atun is not unknown in Cairo cafés. He's made quite an impression upon the public on several occasions since his pilgrimage to Mecca two years ago. And since yesterday afternoon, he's been drinking enough coffee to give him jaundice, while casually spreading the story of a dream he had. Our friend the Haji related how he had slept in the mosque of Ibn Talun after the noon hour, and had dreamed of the sheikh whose tomb is so inconveniently placed. In the dream, the saint clamored to have his tomb moved on account of a bad smell of drainage, which he considers an insult to his own memory. Also, dogs have taken to howling round his resting place at night, and you know that to the true believer a dog is an unclean animal. Except for hunting purposes, or watch-dogging in various branches, good Mohammedans class dogs and Christians together in their minds. Well, already the Haji's dream is working like yeast. The news of it is being carried from one café to another, and I hope that a few more nights' work will do the trick. The votaries of the saint will get up a petition to have his body moved. When it has found another abode, the making of the new thoroughfare will be suggested. Very neat. I see it all, except the connection with Miss Gilder. What has your saint got to do with her? Very little, I should say, by the look in her eyes. But though a green turban's as good as an heirloom, and extorts respect wherever it goes, even a haji may have jealous detractors. I have mine. Another green turban in this town, whose genuineness is doubted for some obscure reason or another, has sneered at my dream. I say, that sounds as if you may be in danger. One man suspects you today, tomorrow. Oh, it's only the dream he suspects at present. I know all the little prayer tricks so well, and I've invented my own history so ingeniously, with a patoise to match my provenance, that I shall get through this incident as I have through others of the sort. There's only one hole in my jebba. Last night, when my rival sprang a sudden question as to what I was doing in Cairo, 
I'm supposed to be a Luxor man. On the spur of the moment I replied that I was acting as dragoman to a rich family of tourists. On that the brute inquired with honeyed accents where they were staying. I said shepherds, because I expected you to be there, and thought if I were followed you might be useful as a dummy. Ah, that's where Miss Gilder comes in? A gilded gingerbread lamb, ready for the sacrifice. Why didn't you accept her offer at once, as she seemed so providential? I'm coming to that. It sounds complicated, but it isn't. For one thing, though, it may be well to wait and find out a little more about that goat-eyed Armenian of yours. He isn't mine. He's—I want to know for certain whose he is. If he has anything to do with my rival Haji, there's more venom and wit inside that green turban than I've given it credit for. Is there a reason, by the way, except their riches, why one should want to get at a member of the American party? By Jove, said I, as if I'd been pinched, for there was a sharp nip in the thought Anthony's question jabbed into my mind. I had disliked and distrusted better El Gamaly, but I had associated my distaste for him with Fenton's affairs. It had not occurred to me that Biddy's fears meant more than a nervous woman's vague forebodings. During the few hideous years of hide-and-seek she had passed in trying to protect the traitor, Richard O'Brien, she had no doubt real enough reason to dread a spy in every stranger, but I had cheerfully advised her not to be morbid when she spoke of herself as a dangerous companion, or stopped me with a gasp in the midst of what seemed an innocent question about her stepdaughter. Could it be possible that her alarms might, after all, be justified, and that the powerful association betrayed by O'Brien would visit his sins on his widow and daughter? That American accent of Gamelee's! He admitted having been in New York. Of course he had made acquaintances there. My thoughts flashed back to the meeting at the railway train. Could the fellow have found out in advance that I was with Mrs. O'Brien, alias Jones, and her friends? It seemed as if such knowledge could have reached land ahead of us only by miracle. But there was always Marconi. Perhaps news of Miss Gilder had been sent by wireless to Alexandria, with our humbler names starred as satellites of that bright planet. If this were so, better, instructed from afar to watch Richard O'Brien's widow, might easily have been clever enough to suborn a messenger waiting for one Ernest Burrow. "'What are you mumbling about?' Anthony wanted to know, when I forgot to answer. "'Have I put some idea that you don't like into your head?' "'I was turning your question over in it,' I explained, and I wondered what to answer. Of course Miss Gilder's rather important, and I believe her father's obsession used to be when she was a child that she'd be kidnapped for ransom.' The little sprite of a woman you admire so much knew the Gilders in those days. She says that the unfortunate baby used to be dragged about in a kind of caged perambulator, and that some of her nurses were female detectives in disguise, with revolvers under their white gowns. No wonder the girl revels in emancipation and travel. I should think, now she's grown up to twenty-one years and five foot eight or nine of height, without being kidnapped, there's not much danger so long as she keeps in the boundaries of civilization. Still, one never knows, in such a queer world as ours, where newspapers live on happenings we'd laugh to scorn if they came out of novel-writers' brains. That's the only incentive you can suggest for spying, unconnected with my affairs? I hesitated, for Biddy's secret was not my secret, and it seemed that I had no right to pass it on, even to my best friend. I must ask Biddy's permission before telling Fenton that Mrs. Jones was the widow of the informer Richard O'Brien, that she feared over-subtlety on the part of the enemy, might confuse her girl-traveling companion with Esme O'Brien, hidden in a convent school near Monaco. 
"'It's just credible that there may be other incentives,' I said. "'But I must confess I'd rather believe that Armenian spies were on the track of Ahmed Atun, who can take care of himself, than after poor Miss Gilder, or any of her party.' "'What's the name of the laughing sprite?' suddenly asked Fenton. "'Miss, er, uh, Jones, Bridget Jones. Where's her husband? In his grave.' "'Oh, well, his widow looks ready to bubble over with the joy of life, so I suppose we can't associate spies or anything shady with her. That's too much to hope for?' "'Why to hope for?' "'That would make her too interesting.' "'Look here, my dear fellow, you can't have them both.' The dark eyes of Antoon lit with a spark of surprise and laughter. "'I don't want either, thanks. I admire flowers, but I never gather them. I leave them growing. However, you might tell me which one you want for your own buttonhole?' "'Really, I don't know,' I mumbled, taken aback. "'All I do know is it's not likely I can get either.' Anthony stared at me with a curious expression, then abruptly changed the subject. "'You've heard of Sir Marcus Lark?' he asked. "'Of course,' said I, surprised at this question, sandwiched into our affairs. "'Sir Marcus Lark is a man who has his finger in many pies, but I didn't see how he could poke one into ours.' Everybody knows Sir M. A. Lark, given a baronetcy by the Radicals some years ago when returned for services to the party, starting and running a newspaper which must have cost him fifty thousand pounds before it began to pay. He has financed theatres and vegetarian restaurants. He owns cocoa plantations and factories and a garden city. He has a racing yacht which once beat the German emperors. He owns two hotels. He has written a book of travel. His name as a director is sought by financial companies. He has lent money to a distressed South American government in the making, and though the success of his enterprises has sometimes hung in the balance for months or years, his wonderful luck seems invariably to triumph in the end, so much so that Lark's luck has become a well-known heading for newspaper columns, in the middle of which his photograph is inset. At the mention of his name, the oft-seen picture rose before my eyes, a big man, anywhere between thirty-six and fifty, good head, large forehead, curly hair, kind eyes, pugnacious nose, conceited smile under waxed moustache, heavy jaw, unconquerable chin, and prize-fighter's neck and shoulders. What has Sir Marcus Lark to do with us? He's in Egypt, in Cairo just now, and he's got our mountain. Good heavens! I stared blankly at Anthony, seeing not his dark face under the green turban, but that everlasting, ever-smiling newspaper-block portrait. Down toppled our castle in the air, Anthony's and mine, the shining castle which had been the lodestone of my journey to Egypt, the secret hope and romance of our two lives, for all those months since Anthony first read the Ferlini papers and began negotiations with the Egyptian government. "'It's all up, then,' I said, when I felt that I could speak without betraying palsy of the jaw. "'We're done.' "'I'm not sure of that,' Fenton answered. "'If I had been, I shouldn't have broken the news so brutally. "'It's on the cards that we may be able to bring the thing off yet.' "'But how, if that bounder has got the place for himself? "'He must have found out the truth about it somehow, or he wouldn't have bothered. "'And if he knows what we know, or think we know, "'he certainly won't give up to us what he's grabbed for himself. "'A beastly shame we should have been let in like this, "'after being given to understand that it would be all right.' Lark must have a pull of some sort. I haven't learned what, but I will. The one hope is, he hasn't stumbled onto the secret. What? You think he hit on our pitch by a mere coincidence? An accident? No, there's not a shadow of a doubt that he had a special motive for wanting our mountain and no other. 
Have you formed an idea what the motive is, if not the same as ours? I've heard his version from his own lips. It's rather astounding, and I want you to hear it from him, too. You've met him? Yesterday at Shepherd's, before I went in for this dressing-up business. Lark heard I had wired for a room at the hotel, and was lying in wait for me on the terrace when I got back from the agency. We had a talk. I'd heard just before the news about the mountain, but he explained. Now he wants to see you. He's got something special to say, and I've made an appointment for you with him at two o'clock. End of chapter five.